Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Marvin Berkowitz. Dr. Marvin Berkowitz is the inaugural Sanford N. McDonald Endowed Professor of Character Education and co-director of the Center for Character and Citizenship at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? Doing great, you know, given the fact that I've been stuck in the same chair for a year. Ah, yes. So, so I mean, are you are you not going into UMSL? Are you staying put? You know, I always was one who didn't like working at home and went to the office every day. Um, and then when I was forced not to, I got so into the habit of sitting here that the idea of, why should I spend a half hour going back and forth to my office when there's no one there anyhow? So I've gone in about four times just to check mail and things like that. But otherwise, I work from home. I got I got to tell you, I'm pretty comfy at home. I like it. My my pets like it too. They're all for yeah. this staying at home yeah. thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me. I mean, so I got to talk to your wife. I got to talk to Judy about, you know, what, what this whole thing is that you're doing. And I was so intrigued because I had just started this whole movement around kindness. And I was telling her that, you know, I didn't want it to be all fluffy. I needed to, it to, you know, have, have, I wanted to put some thoughts out there that help people understand that it can be a really deep issue. And then she was like, oh, Marvin hates that. He doesn't like when people are fluffy. He likes to really like get there. And, make, and I'm like, okay, I got it. I want, I feel like I could so learn from you. So tell me about this Center for Character and Citizenship. I love the sound of it. Sure. Um, let me roll it back a little bit and say that I'm a developmental psychologist. Mostly you can think of it as a child and adolescent psychologist. Um, and my interest always was the development of human goodness. You know, how did children and adolescents become good human beings or not become good human beings? And um, there were natural applications to the two main influences on kids, which is their families and their schools. So I've done some work in parenting and families, but most of my work's been done in schools. So really the question becomes, how do we leverage schools to nurture human goodness in children? The term I'm using now is um, uh, nurturing the flourishing of human goodness. Oh, I and, love that. Yeah, and, and there is a science behind it. I mean, we know a lot about the impact of parents and schools and teachers on kids and how they develop, uh, not just in terms of reading and numeracy and so on, but also in terms of their, their um, nature, their character, um, uh, their intrinsic goodness. And that's what we want to communicate to schools. So what we've really been trying to do to a large degree is collect all the knowledge from social science and educational science that's out there about what actually works to impact the flourishing of human goodness and then distill it down for schools so that it's understandable and manageable and, and actionable. And that's you know the core of it. I mean the big mission is um, you know comes from the, my Jewish tradition, which is tikkun olam, to heal the world. And the idea is that how can we be agents of good in the world by making the world a more moral place, a, a place where there's more human goodness? And the only way to have a more moral world is to have more moral people. And you can't go to the you know the office and and requisition a bunch of moral people. You have to develop them and nurture them, and that works best when you start with them when they're young. So that's why we do what we do. You know, I had a thought that. Um 
we, we are born and, you know, we get these doctors that take care of us physically, but what if people started out with a mental health professional as well? Yeah. I mean, you could think of it as a mental health professional or, I mean, for a lot of people, that's where, you know, religion comes from. You know, religion is a way to help you nurture the goodness the spark of goodness in you and so on. So it could be mental health. It could be other sources. But the idea is to have a guide, a goodness guide, maybe would be a term for it. Um, it, it you know, that's supposed to be the role of parents. Parents right. are supposed to do that. Yes. Um, would that it were always so. And right. that's one of the challenges. Very often, one of the pushbacks we get in school sometimes is it's not our job. It's the job of families. And I say, basically, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. Because if the families, some of the families are not doing it, then either you're stuck for the rest of your career teaching kids who are under-socialized, or you step in and help, you know, help them become the kinds of people that's best for them and best for the world. So is the thought that to help the schools to see when there is a child that is needs guidance that needs, you know, because there's, there's a lot that can go into this, right? There's a lot of trauma that could have happened to the child that needs to be addressed. I mean, it just feels so big, but I, I want, I want it to work. So yeah. what is the thought? Well, I mean, I, I would steer that a little bit of a different direction. There, there's okay. a, there's a model in, in a lot of areas of psychology and education that talks about sort of three groups of kids the vast majority, 80, 85% or whatever, are kids who are on a generally good path in life. And then there's about, you know, another 10, 12, whatever percent of kids somewhere around there uh, who are starting to struggle. And then you got kids who are sort of becoming more deeply pathological. They're pretty, really troubled kids. And that there are different levels of intervention for these kids. And what I always argue is that biggest group is what we should design the bulk of this work around. What do we right. do for regular healthy kids just to support their flourishing? And that's what all, all schools have to do. Then we can talk about, okay, now if we've got some kids who are starting to stumble, what added things can we do for them to write the you know, to write their, their ship before it starts to really flounder. And then for the kids who are really struggling with mental illness or what highly dysfunctional families or whatever it happens to be, what else do we need to do for those kids? All too often what happens in schools is either they only talk about the kids who are struggling and mm -hmm. say, what do we do for them? We have to fix those broken kids. Everybody else is okay, which is not true. Right. Um, or what they do is they take a model that works for highly struggling kids and do it to everybody in the school, which makes no sense either. Right. You know, if somebody needs surgery, you don't do surgery on everybody. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's a model out there called uh, PBIS, Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports. It's an interesting story because the way it started was somebody looked at severely cognitively impaired kids and said, you know, we're treating them terribly. We're using behavioral methods because language is, their language skills are not good enough to use talking to them to guide their behavior. But we're using really cruel ones. We're restricting them, we're isolating them, we're punishing them. Um, 
And why don't we use positive behavioral strategies? Let's reward them when they do something good. Let's control their environment so there's less triggers for the misbehavior and so on. It was brilliant and it worked well. And then the rest of the special education world said, why don't we do that for all diagnostic categories, not just for the kids? For, you know. And then somebody in the federal government actually caught wind of this and put it in federal legislation and made PBIS something that's a school-wide approach. So now they ended up with using something designed for a very narrow you know, group of kids and saying all children should be treated that way. And because it was part of federal legislation, it's sweeping the country. And I'm one of the more vocal you know, opponents to this saying, no, that's not what you need to do. So why is that not working? Basically it says, well, let me do it this way. Everybody who works with children has at least an implicit theory of what children are like. Maybe it's explicit, maybe they've thought it out and they articulate it, but in most cases you haven't even really thought about it, but you act on it. So you have thoughts about how children learn if you're an educator. You have thoughts about what corrects kids' misbehaviors if you're a parent or an educator. Um, and the theory of the child in that model is that a child is like an animal, it's like a pet dog. And it has to be a hierarchical relationship you have to control them, power flows in one direction, uh, their voices don't matter, and so on. Uh, and I can't in good conscience think of children that way. No. You know, I wanna respect children as human beings that have rights like everybody else. You know, very interesting aside is that the UN Convention on Children's Rights, now this is going back a way, so I haven't checked out in on it now, but was signed by every country on the face of the earth except for two. One was, I think it was Sudan, one of the oh. countries in North Africa, Somalia, because they had no government, so they couldn't ratify it. And the other was the good old US of A. Really? And the main reason we wouldn't do it is because in it, they said there should be no capital punishment for children, and we wanted to reserve our right to kill children. Um, so, you know, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what's an enlightened way to deal right. with children? How do we understand them? And I want a more enlightened way of understanding children as autonomous beings who are not fully formed yet. Right. And, and need shepherds and guidance. They need to guidance. Help them, on their, yeah, help them on their journeys. I love this. And I, I can't tell you how much I agree with something like this. In fact, <clears throat> I was just talking about this recently with another guest who deals with um, people, you know, who are trying to figure out their trauma from their childhood. But I was telling her, I said, I, I, I don't understand parents that in their head have decided what their kids have to look like and be like when they grow up. And that that's the guidance they get. Like, I need you to look like this. And I need you to marry this way and have kids and, you know, all this. And I'm like, it's, why don't we look at kids and think my, my, as your parent, I'm supposed to start to really understand you and help you to be all that you are supposed to be the person you're supposed to be, not what I have in my head that I think you should be. Yeah, and another I, important piece of that is, you know, we live in the greatest experiment in self-governance that's ever been crafted by mankind. Yeah. 
And it is floundering miserably. And not just ours. Democracies around the world are struggling. And part of the enterprise we're talking about, which is why our center is called the Center for Character and Citizenship Education, is that the only way a democratic society is going to succeed, and the founding fathers knew this, and it's been talked about through the centuries, is by having virtuous, participating, competent citizens. And they ha we have to socialize and educate and parent kids to be that way. And you can't take kids who are treated in an authoritarian, hierarchical way, controlled externally, and then suddenly expect them to know how to and to want to, to be participants effectively in the democratic space. How are they going to learn to, to you know, use their voices to advocate collectively for the common good and the common sphere? That's what John Dewey told us 100 years ago, and, you know, and the founding fathers said this as well. And, um, we're, we're misunderstanding what it takes and that, in fact, giving children developmentally appropriate voice is actually socializing them to be democratic citizens someday. Right. That I, I, that is very well said, and that gives so, me so much to think about because we we are in an experiment. We do need to rethink. I mean, just look at the news and you how violent things are in the United States. I mean, I I have to think we are not doing something right. Okay. That we have these mass shootings that just happen on a pretty frequent basis. Um, and you know, and and it just it boggles my mind that we what are we doing? Yeah. You know, what yeah, are we doing here? There's no perfect solution to this one, but you're right. There are many ways <laughs> we are me. we are taking missteps and have been doing it for a very long time. Um, I got a um, an interesting email just yesterday from the Ministry of Education in Singapore. I've done some work with them before, and I've been there many times and spoken, and they say they now want to start a center, something like our center, um, a center for character and citizenship, and they wanted you know my advice and guidance on this. And Singapore is an intriguing place because it's not really a democracy; it's a one-party system. Yet, in so many ways, it's outstripping us. Now, I'm not arguing for a one-party system, right? But what you see, in essence, is stasis in in our system, where you have two completely polarized powers that are just neutralizing each other and not allowing us to progress and move forward. And then you have a place like Singapore with an enlightened one party that works hard to make that little miraculous island nation flourish. Now, obviously there's downsides to theirs and upsides to ours, and, but the point is, you know, Churchill had it right when he said something like democracy is the worst form of government that ever that humans have ever created, except for all the others. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was, he was, I think he was paraphrasing someone else, but he gets credit for it for, from everybody. But the point is that there is no perfect form of government. Um, you know, I used to always think that, you know, the philosopher King, King Solomon or somebody like that being appointed as the leader of a nation would be perfect. But the problem is who picks them? Right, <laughs> Some, right. Somebody's got to pick them and, and they're not perfect, you know, ethical beings. And so they're going to now pick somebody who's not the right person. 
So I really love the idea though of of having an enlightened <laughs> group of people that are leading us how do you rather get than them is the power problem. hungry and you yeah. know it's my way or the highway. <laughs> you know, the question like, is how do you how do you get them? How do you select them? Right. Uh, well, yeah. How do I know you're enlightened? Is there an enlightened meter out there? Right. We can so that's why we settle for democracy, which is you know who gets the most support. You know, but the you know the greatest blessing of democracy is everybody gets to vote, and the worst curse of democracy is that everybody gets to vote. Um, well, and you don't exactly know what you're voting for sometimes because there's that sure, whole sure. thing called media that yeah. you know can make a person look a certain way, sure. good or bad. And it's just, it, it just hurts my head. But yeah. I love the idea of from the, what you're doing foundationally, let's, let's start young, mm-hmm. you know, let's build the character and the citizenship at a younger age and not, not from any political viewpoint, just in your heart, be a good person, do good yeah. for the world. Yeah, we have a number of programs around the citizenship side. The bulk of what we do is around the character side. Okay. But we have a, um, a curriculum called Youth Empowerment in Action, which gets kids to take on real-life problems in their communities and then sort of lobby in their community, and sometimes with the legislature, um, to change laws, to correct those problems. We've um, supported Kids Voting Missouri for a very long time, where every time there's a big election, kids are guided through a whole curriculum around how to understand elections, how to decide on candidates, how to get informed, how voting happens, how you register for voting and all of that. Um, We have another one called My Logo, which gets kids involved with very local government, like their local town, looking at how it works and learning about problems and so on. So we do a few things in the area of specifically citizenship, but the bulk of what we do is more generally working with school leaders, which is really what we find is our best leverage point, working with school leaders to understand how to transform schools so they're optimally supportive of the flourishing of goodness in children. Love it. Thank you for what you're doing. You're welcome. I'm telling you, well, it's great. And I I would love to see it at every state. (laughs) Here's an interesting another side to this character thing. Um, Every educator is doing character education. Um, There's, as I like to say, there's no off switch. 2000 years ago, Aristotle said that every person who's around children impacts their character, whether you like it intended or not. Um, The issue is not whether you're going to be impacting kids' character. It's whether you're going to be impacting it for the better based on effective principles and effective strategies. That's what we're trying to do is to get schools to do that. Just last week, the co-director of the center, Dr. Melinda Beer, and I did a full week of training in quotes in um, Bogota, Colombia on a project we're doing down there with eight schools to work with the leaders and leadership teams to get them to rethink the way they function as a school. And we do that here through our um, leadership academies, um, used to be called the Leadership Academy in Character Education. Now it's called SEAL, C-E-E-L, because of some big grants we've got. Um, but they basically take a cohort of school leaders and spend a whole year with them, trying to get them to more deeply understand what does it mean to be a school of, for character? 
and then also to get them to work on um, a model that Dr. Beer came up with of uh, the eight virtues of servant leadership, how to be a servant leader. Uh, I love servant leadership. I think that's one of, I, I love that so much. We have a nice model of it that we've been enacting with some uh, funding from the Kern Family Foundation up in Wisconsin and the um, John Templeton Foundation out of Philadelphia. So can any school just get a hold of you and say, we could, we could use this help? We could use this education. Yeah. Now, one of the things that makes it easier here, and most people are not aware of this, St. Louis is the hotbed for character education, not just because of our center. Um, As you noted at the beginning, I'm the Sanford and McDonald professor of character education. And Sandy McDonald, you know, most, a lot of people in town know him because he was the CEO of McDonald Douglas and then Boeing. Um, And when he retired, um, he asked himself, what's going to be my retirement career? And he always had a great interest in youth. He was the national chairperson of the Boy Scouts of America and so on. And he also had a great interest in ethics. He established an eth- you know, a, 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 a corporation-wide ethics program and made sure he was one of the first people to go through it and so on. Um, so he put those together. I often like to say like the old Reese's peanut butter cup commercial where one person's walked out a hallway eating peanut butter from a jar. The other's walking out a hallway eating a chocolate bar and <laughs> bump into each other. I remember and, those. <laughs> yeah, Eureka, chocolate peanut butter were, were wetted and and Reese's peanut butter cups were formed. Well, this was Sandy putting together his interest in ethics and youth. And he decided to create what's what's now called Character Plus, which is a local organization in town run by my friend Mike Park. And um, that's been around for over 30 years. And then he decided to go national. He started what's now called Character.org which is the as close as we get in America to a national organization. Okay. So in St. Louis, we've had Character Plus going for over three decades. Look at us go. Yeah. And when I was hired, my position was created by Sandy. It was because they realized they had been really spreading it widely in the in this region. But it was like a millimeter deep because they didn't really have expertise. They weren't focusing on school leadership and so on. And that's why they decided to create my position to bring in an expert at a university. Um, and they approached UMSOL and said, would you be willing to house this position? They said, sure. And so um, I got hired to, to come in and do this here. So in the St. Louis region, between Character Plus and our center, there are massive resources, more than anywhere else in character education. So there's so many schools in this region who are doing this in different ways and to different degrees of success, but there are lots of them out there. Oh, good. Well, that gives me hope. Yeah. Yep. So then tell us how will people find you? Like if they're listening to this, they're like, we need to get this going on in our school. Sitting in the same chair in my house. I've been sitting in for an entire year. It's that hard (laughs) to locate. No, um, you can go to our center's website, which is character and citizenship characterandcitizenship.org. Character and citizenship is one run-on word. Um, and um, my wife, just when she retired, became our our web guru. Yes, so I heard. She created a whole it. new glossy website for us. Um, I think it's amazing. Yeah, you can also just email me at my last name, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, at umsel.edu. Berkowitz at umsel.edu. So you can get me that way. Those are the two best ways to get me. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm, I hope people will reach out because I find this so important. Yeah. Um, but I also have some fun questions for you. 
Sure. As long as, as long as we plug my forthcoming book somewhere in those Can questions. We <laughs> Let's make that our first question. Sure. Will you be writing a book anytime soon? <laughs> no, because I just finished one. It's coming <laughs> out in a month. Let's talk about it. Talk, what is your book? It's uh, about a model that, I, that I've created. It's come out of this notion of collect all the research in the field and distill it down for educators. The model's called PRIMED. And it's an acronym, six letters, P-R-I-M-E-D, the word PRIMED. Um, which stands for six what I call design principles for character education. So I don't, I'm not interested in creating a program or curriculum. I want to give people ways of thinking about schools so that as they make moves in their schools to change something, to institute something new, um, that they follow those principles, those guidelines. So the principles, the P is for prioritization, which essentially means make sure that character is a priority, authentic priority in your school because everybody knows all the pressures we have to get good academic scores in schools. Right. But if we let that swallow up or suppress the obligation to educate the whole child, including their goodness, um, then we can't do effective character education. The R is for relationships. Relationships are sort of the molecules in which we build great schools, including academically, um, and good character. And we have to be strategic and intentional about relationships and structural, build it into the school calendar and so on. Um, because in most cases, good relation, if you have good people, good relationships will follow, right. except for the people who need it most. And that goes back to your earlier question about the kids who are struggling. The, and it's not just the kids, there are adults that are struggling. Oh, yes. Too. Oh, yes. Um, and they won't have the healthy relationships unless there's a strategic, intentional, and structural way of making sure everybody has relationships. And they have to include all stakeholders. They have to include, you know, the cooks and the principal and the counselor and the custodians and everybody has to be in there. Um, the I is for intrinsic motivation, which means that what we really want is these core values that a school often embraces go from the school's agenda to inside the child. They have to internalize them so that they are now people who are intrinsically motivated, internally motivated to be honest, to be compassionate, to be just, and so on. Not just doing it because they get a recognition or a reward, which are extrinsic reasons. Right. So we have to use the pedagogy of intrinsic motivation. How do we get those values from outside into the kid? The M is for modeling. Gandhi, Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. I say be the character you want to see in, in their kids. And um, the E is for empowerment. That goes back to that democracy notion that unless we empower all stakeholders in the school, um, one, we don't serve their best psychological needs. And two, we're not serving the future of democracy. And the D is for developmental uh, perspective or developmental pedagogy, which says think long term. Stop thinking like the corporations in America do. Everything is, you know, what's the bottom line this quarter, what are our profits this quarter, but think about who's that kid going to be in 10, 20 years. And how do I educate a kid to support them for the rest of their lives, rather than just to get them to learn a thing now, to, to do a brain dump onto a test and then forget it. Um, and so that's the yeah. prime model. The book is called Primed for Character Education. And when does it come out? Uh, like three, three and a half weeks. April 22, I think. Well, congratulations and thank you for writing that. 
not a problem. I was. I think it should be it was, it was a reading. long process. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not easy yeah, to write yeah. a book, is it? No. Uh, plus, so, I'm getting old, so when I write something, if I don't go continue right away, I forget what I wrote and I have to go back and read it. And when you're two thirds of the way through the book, that adds a lot of time. <laughs> All right. So my buddy and your buddy, Steve Summers, yep. he has a question that he thought I should ask you. Okay. Tell us, well, I just want to know, I mean, we actually, it's more of a, just tell us about your mad soccer skills. <laughs> actually, you got that letter. It's not an M, it's a B. It's my <laughs> bad soccer skills. You misunderstood what he was saying. Um, I started playing soccer when I was in middle school because I wasn't a good athlete and it was a new sport in our school. I grew up in New York. Um, and so nobody got cut from the team and a couple of my friends were going out. So I started playing it in middle school. I made it through, um, uh, the th uh, five years of playing, you know, let's take back six years of playing, um, all the way through high school. They begrudgingly gave me a varsity letter at the end of the six years because I stayed with it so long. Um, and then I put it away. I went off to college and I just, played basketball and other things and um, forgot about it. And I was living in Milwaukee as an assistant professor at Marquette University and um, hanging out at my friend's German restaurant. And a bunch of them started talking about putting together a soccer team. And I said, God, I haven't thought about that in 17 years. Um, I'm in. So I started, we started playing there and I it was once a week and um, I was, I had no idea what I was doing and <laughs> I can't play. It was my <laughs> mid-30s, but I was hooked. And it's now 35 years later. <laughs> and I haven't stopped. And I've played, I've won two state championships for the over 50s, but it was way back when. I'm 70 now. So um we're oh, gearing, I think it's awesome. We're gearing up to play in the state tournament again. And I realize I am 20 years older than the age cutoff for this age bracket. But we play in the hey, national tournament. I think it's great. And we play Go. the national tournament periodically, and those are every five years. So I'm now in the over 70 bracket. There's actually an over 75 bracket too. So <laughs> I'm aiming for that one as well. And it's just I it's it's a it's spiritual, it's social, it's it's physical. I love it. I'm a soccer nut. Well, you gotta love it in St. Yeah. Louis. I mean, yeah. soccer's a thing here, yeah. has been, you know. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, well, that's so fun. Yeah. So one of the things I always ask everyone is just to leave us with something around kindness. Have you have you witnessed a recent act of act of kindness, given one, received one? Mm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of which ones are share <laughs> what's shareable or not. Um <laughs> The, the one that keeps coming to mind, I'll be vague on for, for reasons that are obvious. Um, I watched, I listened to a friend of mine offer her kidney to somebody else. Oh my gosh. Um, and uh, that was impressive. I mean, and it was an immediate and spontaneous you know, offer. It wasn't necessary, turns out. But I thought in hearing about this person's medical condition, for a first response to be, how can I serve you and help you, even to the point of saying, I'm willing to give you 
a part of my body, an important part of my body. Um, that was that was a pretty amazing one. Wow, that's lovely. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm glad I got to witness it. Well, Marvin, this has been an absolute delight. I'm, thank I am, you. I am glad thank it you. worked for you. Well, thank you for being on. I loved learning about it. Yeah. I love that we've got this going on in St. Louis. Um, I hope that we can we can help spread. It looks like you are. You're spreading it out to different countries and such. So let's yeah, keep well, I mean, it Just going. to give you a sense of the scope of this, um, I already mentioned that we're doing this big project in Bogota. I mentioned that Singapore just reached out to me. Every year for the last decade, I go to Taiwan and do training there. We, my colleague, Mindy Beer, has a project that she's taking the lead on in Kenya. We're supporting a young professor in Spain who's got a big project in Mexico that will be involved. And most of these are using this prime model that I talked about before. And there are more. Um, there are plenty more in there. So, Love it. Um, Making a yeah. global impact. Yeah, and that's a big part of the goal of this. We've got a lot of stuff that's going into Spanish now because of the Spain, Mexico, and Colombia stuff. So the, my book is going to come out in Spanish eventually. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir. Keep doing you, what you're doing. We appreciate it. You are welcome. And um, anybody who's interested, you know how to get in touch with us now. And if we can help, we'll try to help. Sounds awesome. Everybody out there, there you go. Center for Character and Citizenship at UMSL right here in St. Louis. And anybody listening outside of St. Louis, they'll come to you. They'll talk to you. It sounds like an amazing program. You guys have been listening to Mishmash. I'm Mish Hancock. And don't forget to hop on over to Facebook, look up 100th ME, 100THME, and let's all talk about and be about and prioritize kindness. Thank you. <laughs>